I'm Chris Reback. This is Chris Reback's Conversations. Folks, it's time for a democracy check. With the Trump impeachment trial over and the 2020 presidential primaries in full bloom, I've been thinking a lot about what I imagine many other people are wondering, too. How's our democracy doing? Are America's democratic norms still valid? And how much more of this can our institutions take? So I decided to dedicate the next two conversations to the topic. The first one looks at democracy itself. Coming out of only the third impeachment trial in our history, how stable are we? The second one looks forward. If free elections fill the center of a true democracy, how stable is our election process? Both conversations are with previous podcast guests. Today's is with the two Harvard professors, Stephen Levitsky and Daniel Ziblatt, who I talked with two years ago and who first brought the issue to national prominence with their New York Times bestseller, How Democracies Die. As I re-listened to our previous podcast, and as I note during this one, it's crazy how predictive they were about the way things could and did go. The second podcast will be with Rick Hassan, UC Irvine Law and Political Science professor, creator of the Election Law Blog, and author of the new book, Election Meltdown, Dirty Tricks, Distrust, and the Threat to American Democracy. Some background first on Levitsky and Ziblatt. Levitsky's research interests include political parties, authoritarianism and democratization, and weak and informal institutions with a focus on Latin America. Ziblatt's interests include democratization, state building, comparative politics, and historical political economy. His focus is on European political development. Together, they've spent more than 20 years studying the breakdown of democracies around the globe, places like Germany, Italy, Chile, Venezuela, Peru, among others. Among my questions to them was an update to one of my previous questions. After so much work on shaky democracies in other countries, can they believe even now that somehow our country has become their new laboratory? An editorial note. As you'll hear, near the end of our conversation, I got the Roger Stone DOJ headline alert on my phone, just as my guests were talking about Attorney General Barr and the ways in which various manipulations of legal systems can impact a democracy's health. Talk about real life proving the point in real time. While I interrupted the conversation to ask Daniel and Stephen's reaction, the news had just broken. For example, the prosecutor's resignations hadn't occurred yet, and no one had the time to fully consider what it could all mean. And one listening note. Daniel took our call via Skype from Germany. Sometimes his audio is a little digitized, but that's the price of primary research. Or a vacation. I didn't ask him which one. But before my conversation with Stephen and Daniel, an ask from me to you. I hope you like these conversations, and if so, I'd appreciate if you'd take a moment, go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, and if you're so moved, leave a five-star review. Several more of you did over the last weeks. Thank you. Okay, that's it. Here's my conversation with Stephen Levitsky and Daniel Ziblatt. Stephen, Daniel, great to get to talk with you again. I appreciate your time. Thanks for having us. So I was looking back through my notes. Our first conversation was just over two years ago. You were talking, of course, about you know the ways in which we need to measure and, and evaluate uh, the status of our democracy. I'm, I'm really sorry. It's got to be a slow two years for someone who's in the democracy measuring and evaluating business, isn't it? How have you been able to use your time? Well, we've been we've been busy. It's it's kind of perverse because um, the worse things go, the more people want to talk to us and and buy our book. So uh, it's I 
I do wish things were going better and, and people were less interested. But the topic, like it or not, remains really relevant. That explains why, and that is sadly what, what did lead to this conversation, because among the many things I found myself um, feeling and demanding during the impeachment trial, the impeachment process and the trial, was I really wish I had Stephen and Daniel on speed dial because at each moment I want to understand what is this doing to our democracy. So let's get right into it. And I usually would like to start at the beginning of a story, but in this case, I really think I want to start at the end of your book because that's where you argue against the Democrats' desire to fight like Republicans. And most relevantly, you write, if President Trump were impeached without strong bipartisan consensus, the effect would be to reinforce and perhaps hasten the dynamics of partisan antipathy and norm erosion that helped bring Trump to power to begin with. American politics would be left dangerously unmoored. This sort of escalation rarely ends well. So, Stephen, maybe we'll start with you. Where are we? Uh, we are a, a few steps further down that road that we anticipated. Um, I, I think I, I very much stand by our initial position. There were calls by Tom Steyer, by Maxine Waters, by others for Trump's impeachment uh, on, on the day of his inauguration, uh, which Danny and I strongly opposed. Um, the, the impeachment process that we just came out of I found uh, very, very double-edged. Um, but it was clear to me that um, in this case, even more so than, and I, I don't think, had it not been for Ukraine, I don't think the Democratic leadership would have gone for impeachment, despite everything that was revealed in the, in the Mueller investigation. But in this case, a, an effort to use the powers of the presidency to sway a foreign government to intervene in the 2020 election, calling into question the integrity of our electoral process, which is at the very heart of our democracy, um, I think that the even though uh, what ends up being a, 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 a unilateral, a, a single party impeachment, uh, with the exception of Mitt Romney, um, which is problematic, the cost of doing nothing, the cost of letting that kind of abuse go, I think would have been far greater. So Democrats, small D Democrats, really, because I'll, I'll include Romney here, small D Democrats were faced with a very difficult choice, uh, both of which came with with great costs. And it's true, the impeachment process, uh, although it wasn't it, was, it wasn't successful in removing Trump, um, probably did continue this process of escalation, um, but not doing anything, not breaking the glass in this case, not using impeachment, in my judgment, would have been worse because then you're you're basically um, uh, blessing egregious abuse of power. And that's the balance that I really, I was so desperate during the impeachment and to be able to reach out to you guys. And that's the core of the discussion I really want to have now, because as I reread your book, as I re-listened to our conversation from two years ago, tolerance and forbearance, tolerance and forbearance, those were the keys. That's what I kept getting from both of you. And I, I buy into it. It makes sense. And the spiraling of a de-escalation of democratic standards and norms, that's what you really worried about. The guardrails of democracy, what I might call the concept that it takes two to tango, that democracies really unravel when all parties participate. You know, you talked about institutional forbearance, the act of not exercising to the hilt 
a legal right, instead to underutilize power. And I was re-listening to our conversation, and I could ju- I, I was hearing Republicans uh, saying, as they did, see, that's exactly what the Democrats did with impeachment. They overutilized power. Yes, they have the legal right to impeach, but they did it with no Republican support in the House, the only Romney in the Senate. They did it too quickly. They violated the norm of institutional forbearance. And then on the other hand, I heard Democrats in my brain saying, see, that's exactly what Trump did. He overutilized power. Yes, he had the legal right to hold up aid to Ukraine, but he did it by flagrantly abusing the power of his office. We must impeach because that's our institutional tool to deal with institutional forbearance. So, Daniel, I I guess, how do you view the balance of what needed to be done versus the possibility that it just added to the tolerance and forbearance warning that you gave. Yeah, I think both of those facts are correct. I mean, that it was that it probably did contribute to an escalation, but it was also necessary. So, you know, Steve and I had long conversations about this exact issue over the course of the year. And throughout the year, we continue to both be opposed to impeachment through the Mueller investigation as people were beginning to call for it. Uh, and it was really this assault on this key plank of democracy, which is our electoral institutions, that made us, I think, uh, shift our position. Because at the end of the day, you know, one of the things that electoral autocrats do around the world is they tilt the playing field to their to their benefit to such a degree that it becomes harder and harder to remove them from office. So, of course, as we know, autocrats today don't cancel elections. Instead, what they do is they insulate themselves from elections to make it impossible for them to be or or increasingly unlikely they are removed from office. This is what we have seen in Hungary. This is what we've seen in Turkey. So that even if there are a majority of the electorate opposed to the uh, incumbent, uh, it becomes harder and harder to remove them. And so I think what we were witnessing with, with the events that led up to the Ukraine story were essentially an effort to tilt the playing field. And this was such an assault that the, that the cost, again, as Steve had said, has said, of not doing anything was just simply too great. Um, so, th- so there is a trade-off here. And there is, I mean, there's, and you can, I mean, the, the two arguments that you lay on the Republican and the Democratic sides, what I think what this speaks to is the level of polarization that we've confronted, where both sides really regard uh, each other as, as a threat, as threats to democracy. You know, I, th- I think that the Democrats in this case had a better argument um, because I think the reality is I've just laid out there what really was an assault on our democratic institutions. Um, but this has the, the level of polarization in our politics has contributed to this escalating kind of perception on both sides that each side is a threat to the other. Is that the biggest change since the book came out was the increase in polarization? Is that the gasoline on the fire? Well, I think the polarization was there, um, but did, did it get worse? Not, uh, it's 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 continuing. I I can't think off the top of my head of measures to to say that it's clearly worse. But but one thing that's clearly happened uh, that's happened before our eyes that happened much more quickly than we anticipated in the book. If you remember, uh, we anticipate in the book that there will be Republican opposition to Trump. That's evaporated. The Trumpization of the Republican Party over the course of three years has been stunning. And it's meant because of polarization, it's meant that the Republicans, individuals who are not uh, themselves um, authoritarians, but it's meant that the entire Republican Party, 
has lined up behind a an, auto, an authoritarian leader, which is very, very dangerous to our democracy. And it's that process, it's the polarization that Daniel mentioned that's making institutions like impeachment utterly dysfunctional. I mean, the problem, the, the, the reason we face the, the kind of quandary or dilemma that you laid out is because polarization is has gotten to, its point, to the point where um, for Republicans, beating the Democrats is more important than checking the abuses of the president. And the Republicans made very clear that it really doesn't matter what Trump did, they were going to acquit him. And that that makes the kind of bipartisan uh, consensus that we that we talk about in the book and that we basically saw in the 70s with Nixon, it made it basically impossible to achieve. Stephen, in fact, there's no reason, of course, why you would remember this, but here's what you said to me at 27 minutes, 10 seconds of our previous conversation. One thing that Daniel and I worry about a lot, in fact, we worry about it more now than when we were writing the book six months ago. Now, this was a two-year-ago conversation that we had, is the complicity of the Republican Party. We expected when we wrote the book that at least some faction of the Republican Party, particularly in the Senate, would stand up and sort of draw a red line against some of President Trump's worst efforts to abuse power. And that is increasingly not the case. It's unclear that they will do that. In fact, it's unlikely that they will do that. Daniel, how annoying is it when Stephen's right? Steve is right. Um, And uh, I think one of the things that, you know, was really clear sort of from the outset was that the Republican role was going to be critical and the failure to stand up, you know, both in the in the lead up to the election as well as subsequently has, has been a critical part of what's happened to our democracy. What, one thing, though, that I would add a big change since we were last since perhaps we last talked was the midterm elections when the Democrats um you know, retook the House of Representatives, and this divided government has been a crucial part of the story, because you know what one what one has seen is in fact, you know, a resistance or, a, or an effort to constrain the president coming from the House of Representatives, but the result hasn't been the way that we imagine our checks and balances to work. The result has been utter dysfunction. Um, and Steve mentions the impeachment is not working in the way that it's supposed to, and much of our government is not working in the way it's supposed to, even with a divided government. And again, I think this is driven by both polarization and the, the erosion of these norms that we, we talked about at the beginning. Because without forbearance, uh, what the kind of flip side of the absence of forbearance is um, the allies of the president in any kind of political system run on the absence of mutual toleration means that the the allies of the president are so fearful of the other side that they'll defend the president no matter what abuses he undertakes. So the system of checks and balances simply can't work even with divided government in the absence of these norms. There were two events that really cut through all of the noise, a lot of the noise, and it really stood out, one during the impeachment and one more recently that I want to ask you both about, particularly their effects. Because also in thinking again about tolerance and forbearance, it struck me how certain events can really speed that decline, risk speeding that decline. And that's what we're all concerned about. The first one during the impeachment trial, what has kind of come to be known as the Dershowitz standard, the sense that the president for his or her own election, if he or she believes that that election and action is in the public good, can do anything anything that he or she wants. I'm paraphrasing, of course, but that's, we all heard Alan Dershowitz. What did you think when you heard it? And Daniel, maybe I'll go to you. What did you think when you heard it? And 
what type of role does that have on tolerance and forbearance? Well, it's essentially making the argument uh, against forbearance. It's saying that the president can push Article 2 of, of the Constitution as far as he wants. Um, and, you know, whether or not it's le- – I mean, he was trying to make the case, I guess, that this was legal. But the point we would make, I think, is that whether or not it's legal, the way that the system has worked to date is that presidents and all institutional actors act with self-restraint. And so whether or not it is legal to do this – the question is, is it advisable and is it useful and helpful and, uh, and, and compatible with our democracy? And I would argue no. I mean if every institutional actor uh, acted to the full extent of what legal authority they were granted, that they could have you – know, have Alan Dershowitz arguing on their side, you know, arguing that they can push as far as they want. I mean the point is what does this do to our democracy if a political actor acts that way? If a president acts the way that, that Alan Dershowitz uh, imagines that they ought to, what kind of political system would we in fact live in if all actors subscribe to this kind of doctrine? So I, so I think it's clearly a violation of, of a kind of norm of mutual – of a forbearance. Could I, could I make two quick points about that? Yes, please. Uh, Daniel is absolutely right. Um, but I, it, it's really difficult to overstate just how reckless and irresponsible uh, that intervention was on the part of Dershowitz. I mean Dershowitz, we all know, loves to make uh, controversial statements, loves to be the center of controversy – you know, I guess that's okay on Fox News, but to get up in an impeachment trial uh, and to uh, you know potentially be uh, contributing to the setting of a precedent for future presidential behavior, uh, it, it's extraordinarily irresponsible. This is exactly, exactly the argument. I've studied authoritarians for thirty years. That authoritarians across the board, whether it's Perón, Getulio Vargas, Pinochet, Hugo Chavez, Erdogan in Turkey. It, every, oh, virtually any autocrat I've ever observed has made precisely this argument that I need to do this because it's in the public good. Of course, the autocrat believes it's in the public good. Every autocrat on earth conflates his own political interest with the public good. We know Trump does. So that is just giving an open license, as it has for elected autocrats across modern history, for authoritarian abuse. I, I may be Pollyannish here, but I'm, I'm hopeful that even Republicans, any Republican who expects to be on this earth under a Democratic administration uh, will, will walk away from that precedent because they're, um, uh, they're, they're, they're in big trouble any time that they are in opposition if they allow that to be the standard. Uh, L'état c'est moi is a little bit of what I hear you saying. In rereading your book as well, I guess I didn't realize on my first reading the importance to which you guys seem to give the Clinton impeachment in terms of a point in time of a shift. You talk about Gingrich. You talk about Tom DeLay. You talk about the Clinton impeachment and how it ran afoul of long-established norms and that the investigations never revealed anything approaching the conventional standards for high crimes and misdemeanors, how the Republican House members moved ahead with impeachment without bipartisan support. I understand you've explained how you feel the balance and the choice that Democrats made or and had to make in terms of this impeachment. If I'm interpreting your analysis of the Clinton impeachment as having been so central, have we just gone through yet another major turn in the state or the advancement of democracy? And where does that turn take us, Daniel? Yeah, it's hard to know where the turn takes us, but it's 
clear that we have gone through a, a new stage. I mean, because of the arguments that Dershowitz made and other arguments that were made publicly. I mean, this you know, language and words do matter, and this is now part of our public debate. And so, you know, I, I do, you know, we do uh, make the case that this really began in the 1990s. It wasn't just the Clinton impeachment, though. I want to make you know clear that it's really the rhetoric that even preceded that of of mutual intolerance. You know, uh, kind of claiming that the other side, that you know, the language that we identify in our book of New Gingrich that Democrats were in some way treasonous or traitors and so on, and that this kind of escalated through the mid 90s up through the uh, Clinton uh, impeachment, and then I think has has actually exacerbated. I think a really a turning point actually certainly came in the Republican opposition to President Obama, especially during the second term, uh, you know, with the number of fil- filibusters exploding. So I think this has been building, and this is kind of another turn. You know, I guess all of us hope that you know maybe this is now we've now gone to this point where things will break back in another direction um it's hard you know i i I don't i'm hesitant to make predictions about where we go next but what's clear is that the system of checks and balances isn't working um and that's why i think there's so much kind of focus on the uh fall 2020 election because it's really now in the kind of uh, the kind of avenue of elections that, that that ultimate check may come, and you know we hope that people learn from from elections, and that's that's and so. In some ways, I think that the failure of impeachment and the highly partisan nature of all of this leaves these institutions kind of we can no longer rely on these institutions at the moment to to solve our problems, and and our electoral institutions seem to still work. I mean, that's what again the lesson of the 2018 election is. And so, you know, we turn again to that this fall and hope that that's that's another avenue of saving our democracy. If I could, if yes. I could partially contradict that, uh, not really. I mean, uh, and Daniel's right that we can't uh, we can't predict the next turn, but I think there is a, a a chance, a decent chance that the 2020 election itself will be that next turn. It's true that we we don't have any history of or any modern history of of fraud or seriously contested elections, at least not uh, not really seriously until back to 1876. But this, I think the, the ingredients are there for a contested election in 2020. This election probably is going to be very close. It's probably going to be basically a tie, much like 2016. It will, uh, it'll come down to a small number of states. It's, there's a good, whether that state is Wisconsin or, or, or Florida or whatever, um, it, there's a decent chance that 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 the states that it comes down to will be uh, will be within the margin of of a recount. That there'll be a recount. That there'll be disagreement over the procedures of the recount, and that it'll have to go to the courts. Some something on the uh, something like 2000 in Florida, uh, and this Supreme Court has a lot less legitimacy with Democrats, uh, big D Democrats, than the 2000 court, and so it's not that difficult. To concoct a uh, an electoral crisis around the 2020 election. I just had a conversation with Rick Hassan, uh, whom exactly. I'm sure you know, yeah, right. and and yes. on election meltdown, electoral meltdown. Well, I'll let you listen to that podcast as well. But yes, that's a big big concern. Um, the last item of current events, and and then I want to take a look forward as you do at the end of uh, the current version of your book, Stephen. Should Nancy Pelosi have ripped up Trump's State of the <laughs> Union speech? Uh, that's, that's another one that I'm torn on in, in an ideal world. Uh, no. Um, but here we're talking about norms of civility. We're not talking about actual, uh, um, 
acts of constitutional hardball that involve a, an, abu- an, an abuse of power. Uh, we're talking about symbolic politics, which matters, but is, I, is not in the same category of actual abuse of power. And Nancy Pelosi, I think to her great credit uh, over the last few years, has been very cautious, has been holding the line against those who really want to push for a kind of a tit-for-tat strategy. Um, I think she has engaged uh, pretty impeccably in forbearance in, uh, in, in, uh, on the issues that matter, including, uh, and most importantly, impeachment. Uh, but she has a diverse party. She has a very angry wing of her party. She has a wing of her party that is that is clamoring for blood, and um, and it's not that difficult to understand why. And she needs to balance the, these these multiple factions in the party. And if ripping up ripping up the speech is a way to do that, it's a less bad way of doing it than uh, you know launching a court packing campaign. Daniel, is that where you come out? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I agree. I agree with that. I mean, the line between what's symbolic and what's a real abuse of power can sometimes get murky. But in this case, I mean, you know, this was not an abuse of power. This was attacking maybe the, the kind of legitimacy of the president at some level. And so is symbolic politics. But all, all, all else equal, I mean, it would be better if she didn't do it. But I can understand why she did. And to be fair, of course, it came after Trump seemingly didn't shake Pelosi's hand, whether he didn't happen to see it or maybe he had seen every other state of the union potentially in history where the president does shake the speaker's hand and just wasn't aware of it. Two areas that I want to ask you about to close out. One is on the indicators of authoritarian behavior. And then, of course, where do we go from here? So the four indicators of authoritarian behavior, the rejection of or weak commitment to democratic rules of the game, denial of the legitimacy of political opponents, toleration or encouragement of violence, readiness to curtail civil liberties of opponents, including media. Daniel, two years ago, you found that Trump had infringed on all four areas. I'm assuming that you don't feel that he has relented in any of those four areas. Where are we on the four indicators of authoritarian behavior? Yeah, well, these were really indicators often rhetorically before one gets elected uh, of that once one is in office, one's going to abuse office. And so it turns out, you know, in terms of attacking the media rhetorically, he's continued to attack the media and, you know, not hold press conferences and, and uh, attack the legitimacy and even threaten violence or kind of implicitly and threaten violence or, you know, in a playful way. All of this stuff is is dangerous, partly because it changes public attitudes and two, you know, so I think two clear examples of this are, you know, public at Republican attitudes towards the media have really taken an incredible and have undergone a incredible transformation. I mean, they've always been skeptical, but really uh, Republicans don't accept the mainstream media as legitimate. Uh, and then also in his frequent discussions of elections as not being is being fraudulent in some way. Public, you know, there's widespread Republican belief that elections are are in some way not working at all and are totally, you know, elections are rigged and Republicans have widespread belief of election fraud, although there's no evidence of this. So in terms of how it's affected public opinion, this has really been transformative. There's been a lot of efforts to kind of act as as an authoritarian um, uh, strongman that have been constrained, I think, over time. And so a lot more swings than hits. I mean, that's one way of putting it. But I think that to me, the, again, the biggest uh, kind of assault has been to our rule of law and the rule of law institution. So the kind of effort to capture the referees of the state, which is another yeah. category 
Roberts. Um, and so, you know, whether that's the firing of Comey, uh, the behavior of Barr under um, Attorney General Barr under under Trump, a kind of a subverting of turning of the rule of law into a kind of weapon to attack political opponents, and which is prime example being going after Joe Biden and also as a shield. Uh, prime example kind of to, to stall out the investigations of, of the Trump administration. So it's in that last domain, I think, where the, the biggest abuses have taken place under the Trump administration. And so where do we go from here? Stephen, you outline, you and Daniel outline three possible futures. Why do you feel that democracy without solid guardrails is the most likely? Well, the first outcome is the, uh, I don't remember the order that we presented in the book, but one is the Joe Biden is Joe Biden's scenario, which is that Joe wins the election and he and Mitch McConnell sit down and uh, and the Republicans calm down and, and we get back to some the, the politics of some previous era. Um, that that seems increasingly unlikely. Very, very few people believe on, on either side of the aisle believe that that scenario is is possible. The, the other is that uh, that we move in a in an openly electoral authoritarian direction. I think the the strength of the Democratic Party and the strength of the opposition, which we saw in 2018, make that fairly unlikely as well. Um, there we may slide into a, a fairly ugly form of, of minority rule, thanks to our counter majoritarian institutions and, and the way and the sort of the political geography of the parties today, that the Republicans, through no fault of their own, are now a party of, of sparsely populated territories, which are dramatically overrepresented in the Senate and have a bit of an advantage in the Electoral College. So that could, I mean, it's, it's entirely possible that we get yet another president elected who doesn't win the popular vote in 2020. But outright sort of Russia-style autocracy, I think, still remains very unlikely. Uh, I think 2018, what happened under divided government, as Daniel mentioned, what's happened since 2018 suggests that this third scenario of kind of a North Carolinization uh, in which we have increasing slides into crisis, uh, kind of careening in and out of institutional crisis, attempted abuses, escalation, uh, retribution, uh, more impeachments, more government shutdowns, uh, more stolen Supreme Court seats, maybe more contested elections without necessarily the whole thing falling apart, in part because there's a, there still remains a, a decent balance of power. There's no single party or figure that can wipe out the other. But every sign points to increasing instability and an increasing frequency of, uh, of institutional crisis. Can I just add yeah, two, two quick points to that, if I may? The, the, the first is that, you know, an analogy to kind of think of is that the immune system of, the Amer of American politics is weakened. And so the threshold of kind of being thrown into crisis is now much lower. It's much easier for this to happen. You know, if there's a close election, this should be this is something that normally under normal circumstances, uh, a democracy can survive. But given the environment that Steve just laid out, it means that our, our again, our immune system is weaker. And so so we're much more prone to, to crisis. The second point I wanted to make was just that, you know, there's there's often this discussion over the across nationally in around Europe and in the United States as well that in some ways Trump represents a kind of form of populism and that there's this trade-off between majority rule that is in some way illiberal and kind of the protection of liberal rights. What's so striking about the American setting now 
is that it's really not majority rule. It's really electoral minority rule. I mean, there's a kind of mm. creeping counter majoritarianism that Steve has talked about. And so I think the diagnosis of a kind of majoritarian populism that assaults civil liberties is actually not at all what, what we've now or what we're confronting now in the United States. You write that you're skeptical that America's current crisis might be part of a global wave of backsliding democracy. But you also write that Trump's rise may itself pose a challenge to global democracy. How can both things be true? The United States has a tremendous amount of influence in, in the world, it, particularly in the post-World War II era and in the decade or so following the end of the Cold War. The, the United States was a model democracy for much of the world. The United States uh, was, in the 1990s and early 2000s, the far and away the dominant military, economic, ideological power on Earth. And so what the United States did at home and what the United States promoted abroad mattered. Maybe it wasn't decisive, but it's a pretty important factor. Uh, it's not a coincidence that global democracy reached its, uh, its greatest extension during a period when uh, Western liberal powers, the United States and Europe, were at a, a sort of maximum of strength and prestige. The, the descent of the United States into uh, this sort of right-wing illiberalism means a couple of things. It means the United States is no longer a model. Nobody, no Democrat, small d Democrat, looks at the United States and says, that's, that's where we want to go. In fact, autocrats are now quoting Trump and talking about enemies of the people, etc. Um, and the United States has also stopped, um, largely stopped, certainly at the presidential level, promoting democracy. Uh, for uh, since sec Reagan's second term, certainly since uh, the first Bush presidency, Bush father, uh, the United States spent a generation, couple, almost well, a generation and a half, actively promoting democracy abroad. We're no longer doing that. Uh, there, you know, coups in whether it's uh, um, Hong Kong coups or or elected autocrats. Uh, there, there's now a uh, seems to be a coup in motion. In El Salvador right now, there was uh, uh, election, uh, illegal re-election of the president in Honduras a couple of years ago. The United States does nothing and sometimes even embraces autocrats. So that matters. Uh, the United States itself not being a model of democracy and the United States not promoting democracy will hurt the cause, is hurting the cause of democracy worldwide. Just as we are talking, a headline has come through that the Justice Department is going to abandon its call to jail Roger Stone for nine years as Trump claims miscarriage of justice, just as we're talking. And wow. so who knows Who knows what will end up happening on that, of course. Uh, the headline is just breaking. It could go any way. Do you find that? Do you see headlines every day and relate them back to what you think and study about, Daniel? Oh, yes. I mean, it's, it's a minute. You know, there was a recent headline of somebody was saying that watching Republican behavior, it sometimes seems as if people have read the book, How Democracies Die, and are trying to implement it. Um, <laughs> and so, you know, I hope that's not the case. But no, certainly, I mean, I think, again, one really in this arena of, of trying to capture the state to use it to protect one's allies and go after one's enemies. I mean, we see this on a daily basis. And what's what's, you know, actually, so I'm talking to you, I'm sitting in Germany as I'm talking to you and kind of following up on Steve's point. I mean, what's so interesting, and even in the West European context, West Europeans are very confused about how to think about the world. I mean, they, you know, when they confront uh, Vladimir Putin and they want to kind of put up a defense, there's, you know, there's, they want to put up a defense and a kind of ideological defense against Putin. Um, and they have 
are used to returning to the U.S. in that process. But suddenly they don't know, you know, is Trump on the side of Putin? And it's all it's all very confusing to have and disorienting to have the U.S. behaving in a way where they see where the U.S. seems to be aligning itself with autocrats. And so even in stable democracies, it's having a disorienting impact. And so one sees that again every day here as, as, as well as all around the world. Yeah, I asked you at the beginning of our first conversation um, and, and to close this one. Can you believe that after however many years of quiet study in countries that some of us think about only occasionally and that many of us maybe have never thought about ever about this esoteric idea of, oh, how, you know, how do democracies evolve and peter out? Can you believe that your own country, that America has become part of that conversation? Does that still surprise you? Yes. Yeah, yeah yes. it does. Yeah. And, we're, and we're it's and it's and again it's you know traveling around the world it really is a kind of unusual situation to sort of feel like you have to you know say to people that you talk to well you know the U.S. government looks one way that's people look another way and I sort of remember people telling me this you know in earlier stages of my life from other countries and to find myself in that situation is is really pretty remarkable. Well, I know you will both take this only in the proper way. Um, I hope I never feel the urge to talk with you again. <laughs> you know, maybe we'll get you know, grab dinner or beer or something at some point. But uh, you know, that I never have a professional reason to desire right. to talk with either of you again. Um, Daniel and Stephen, thank you. Thank you for making the time, and uh, thanks for helping uh, put this into context for all of us. It's a pleasure. Best of luck. That was my conversation with Stephen Levitsky and Daniel Ziblatt. My thanks to Stephen and Daniel for the conversation and you for listening. Quick reminders, if you liked this conversation, please give it the five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And don't forget to let me know what you think about this idea to connect a short series of podcasts on a specific topic. Please send me an email to let me know at chrisreback.com. That's all for today. I'll talk with you soon.